This week, we went deep on the impact of data science and venture capital. Most investors form their experience based on a combination of anecdote, pattern recognition, and experience. And candidly, over the majority of the time VC has been a meaningful asset class, there hasn't really been another way to do it. The last decade fundamentally changed that. As compute power has significantly increased, the ability to store, harness, and analyze data has transformed. Not only has this led to many of the most prominent businesses of our time, companies like Facebook and Slack, but it's also opened up a new approach to investing. I chatted with Jonathan Sue, co-founder and general partner at Tribe Capital, to dissect this phenomenon. Tribe has pioneered one of the most novel frameworks in the industry, akin to traditional accounting and financial statements, to unpack early-stage technology companies. We touched on a number of topics in this one. The myth that product market fit can't be quantified, the three fundamental units of analysis that every early stage company can be dissected against, and finding atomic units of value in business. Jonathan, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, Jonathan, pumped to have you on the show today. You know, 20 episodes back or so, I had your partner Arjun on the show. Um, we dove really deeply actually into a lot of the philosophy of why Tribe exists. I want to use this conversation, you know, not to rehash the same topics, but really to pick on some of the threads that we illustrated in that conversation in relation to data science and the eight ball framework. But before diving in, you know, give our listeners a little bit more background uh, information on your background. Yeah, sure. Happy to happy to happy to talk through that. Um, so, so I actually started out as a physicist. I uh, did my PhD at Stanford uh, in theoretical physics in the uh, in the early two thousands. I was studying black holes and string theory which is uh, extremely useless, but you know, it was a sort of fun way to spend my early 20s. Um, towards the end of my PhD, it was clear I didn't want to be an academic, so I ended up joining Microsoft for a little bit. Um, the Facebook platform opened up while I was, uh, while I was at Microsoft, and me and a couple of friends built one of those very early social gaming sort of um, little, little toys. Um, and uh, it grew really quickly. We ended up selling it to a company called Slide, which was Max Levchin's company in the mid-2000s that was working on social gaming. Um, and I went to run data for him for a couple of years. I joined uh, Facebook in 2009 uh, and was there um, for, for five years, during which time, you know, my role ended up expanding to really helping to form and lead the data science and analytics organization for, for the whole company. You know, when I joined, there were, you know, maybe seven of us, I think, that were sort of spread out to the company sort of doing analytics and data every day. Um, and, you know, by the time I left, it was a couple hundred people. Now it's like 2,000 people working on this. Uh, so that was good. So I was there until uh, 2014, at which time I joined Social Capital um, to really figure out sort of the relevance of data science to venture capital. You know, um, you know, after being at Facebook for a long time, we had we had figured out a bunch of things around how to use data in the organization in an organization like like Facebook to make decisions, to help build products, do all sorts of things. And was really interested in sort of, um, you know, combining that with sort of the investor viewpoint, figuring out how to use that to help with uh, early stage companies. And so really explored that for several years as social capital. Um, and, uh, you know, until 2018, at which point we, uh, we spun out to create Tribe and we've been uh, doing it ever since then. Um, you know, at Tribe sort of pulling on a lot of those same um, intellectual concepts around, around using modern data science and analytics to really aid with the uh, with uh, with the venture capital with the venture capital business, yeah. And so, talk a little bit more about that, right? So, you, you mentioned you know you ran the data science team at some of the most high growth and I think intellectually fit you know candidly organizations in the valley at at Slide, Facebook, and Social Capital. Talk talk a little bit more about your experience in those three different organizations and and what the key learnings were with respect to this last point you just mentioned, which was the application of data and a data driven approach to investing. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think, um, you know, if you look back historically, you know, what happened really was that 
in the early 2000s, there was sort of this revolution. Um, it was at, the, at a technology level, right? A technology level revolution in which all of a sudden it was cheap and easy to store a lot of data. And you could actually feasibly compute on a lot of it. This is, a, this is really novel, right? Uh, in the early 90s, if you wanted to count, you know, a billion unique, you know, rows in a database, you, it was really hard, right? You didn't have the computing power, storage was expensive. And then in the mid 2000s, all of a sudden it became really cheap. And uh, all of these companies, you know, the social web companies were sort of foremost among them, started just storing a ton of data. And when you store all this data, there are sort of two threads that come out of it. One thread is like, oh, okay, there's a bunch of products I could build out of this that could be interesting. You know, things like recommendation engines. You could build search. Search is a great example of a, of a product that you could build only if you have a lot of data. So that's, that's sort of one branch. There's this whole other branch, though, of like, okay, I have all this data. How do I, you know, make my regular business decisions? you know, better with all of this data? Um, how do I affect my decision making, my execution? And that's really, um, you know, the area that we were that we were figuring out, I would say, you know, not just at the companies I was at, but as an as an ecosystem, you know, everybody was sort of figuring this out in parallel in India, in, in sort of that 2005 era to 2010. You know, I think some of the big takeaways were that, you know, you know, at the beginning of that, you know, the concept of data science didn't make sense. It wasn't a term, right? And then it became a term. Nowadays, you know, and it was sort of this really, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it was, it was a bit of a sexy term, people were really interested in it. Uh, but over time, it became clear that really you had to use it for business ends. You know, it wasn't just a, a research problem. You know, um, there was a lot of value in just using data to affect what you were actually trying to achieve as a business. And I'd say that really the thing that we figured out across all those companies is that each context is a little bit different. You have to take into account the fact that that the teams that exist and the data that exists are going to treat it differently. You know, there exist companies, teams where the PMs and the engineers, the PMs and engineers already have a very clear vision of how to use data for decision making. And so having extra analysts around doesn't really help a lot. And then there are other situations where the teams are very designer heavy. They really aren't into using data. And so there's a lot more value. There's a lot more potential gain from adding a data person to the team. But, you know, getting them to sort of work together is non-trivial. Right, because obviously there might be some different different opinions about how to use it, and so really it comes down to more of a management problem, right? And so you know when when, um, when we went into investing, honestly, that was the piece that really stuck out, right? Is that is that investors, you know, at each firm, investors kind of have a different mentality. They have a different sort of contingent history that they've gone through that shapes the way they talk about deals, that shapes the way they think about making investment decisions, and inserting data into that process is non-trivial, right? Because of Given, given the pre-existing, um, you know, condition of the, the firm. And so, you know, we were really trying to figure out, okay, like, given the folks at hand, given what we're trying to achieve as venture investors, and given, you know, what we've developed in terms of how we think about how early stage growth happens, how do we put all that together to make something successful? And you guys have, you know, you've translated that into <clears throat> a really elegant framework called the eight ball. Um, I've seen the eight ball, I've seen the eight ball reports, you know, uh, behind the scenes of, of some of the companies and some of the investments you guys have underwritten. And it's a really, really elegant and, and clear way to think about the business and think about it really differently. We're gonna we're gonna dive a bunch into you know the eight ball framework itself. But I want to take a step back first and and just set the baseline of the conversation, Jonathan, with your explanation, you know, for what product market fit means to you. And and the reason I asked that question, it can sound like a cliche question. We we talk a lot about it in tech, but I think there's a there's a very specific perspective on how you guys think about product market fit and then leverage that actual eight ball, you know, to illustrate, you know, whether a company has hit it or not. So let's, let's start with the baseline, you know, what does product market fit actually mean to you? 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so so I, I usually start this with an analogy. So there's a, a bit of a perhaps orthogonal analogy that I like to use, which is, um, you know, I like to say that accountants were the first data scientists. So what does that mean? Well, what does an accountant do? An accountant takes a pile of raw data, you know, the ledger, every, every line of the ledger, and they turn it into something useful, like an income statement or a balance sheet or something like that. Um, and that's really all a data scientist does. They take a pile of raw data. You know, it's important that it's raw. That's sort of where data scientists are native, you know, in raw data. And they turn it into something useful, maybe using a bunch of fancy WYSI math um, or not, you know, one way or the other. But if you're, if you're a decision maker, you don't really care about fancy math. You care, you know, about something being useful and, and something you can trust. You know, you care about an output that you, you would actually face a decision on. And so, you know, with that analogy in, in mind, you know, when you look at an early stage company, you could learn, you could look at the financials, right? You could, you could go through the income statement, but the reality of it is that at the early stages, the income statement doesn't really tell the story, right? Um, it's just, it's too early for the income statement to really show the contours of what's been going on and to give you some sense of what might happen in the future. Um, so, okay, if it's not the income statement, well, what, what does matter? Well, at the early stages, presumably before you have income, you have product market fit, right? That's kind of the term we use for all the things that go on before revenue <laughs> at some level. Um, and, and okay, well, you know, is there data for that? Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's data right there, you know, like they've been collecting the data for it. And so really the question becomes, can you develop a framework that can help you understand that product market fit data um, in a way that accounting helps you understand, um, you know, the financial situation of a company? So, you know, when we think about product market fit, that's more what we, what we mean. We think about it as like, a, you know, a collection of measurable concepts, the same way that accounting is a collection of measurable concepts that you can use to help guide, um, you know, sort of discussion. Um, you know, uh, if you think about accounting, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, you know, accounting is sort of one framework that applies to all business models, which is pretty remarkable in retrospect. You know, if you were to ask a modern analyst at one of these companies for one framework to rule everything. They'd be like, oh, every product is different. Every business is different. True, but accounting seems to be the same everywhere, right? Uh, and yet it also is flexible enough that it can get very specific. You know, okay, income statements for insurance companies look a specific way. They, they're different from the income statements of a restaurant. Um, so accounting is really remarkable in that it does that. Other aspects of accounting, you know, um, you know it, it doesn't make sense to say, is accounting a predictive model? How good is the model? that's not the purpose of accounting. The purpose of accounting is to like um, give you a sense about the past in terms of a, a bunch of definitions that you have some, you know, intuitive grasp on. In a similar way, you know, our eight ball is basically that. So it's a bunch of really clean definitions that allow you to talk about the past in a reasonable way so that you can then prognosticate about the future, at least with a common language. Yeah, I think that's that's the key piece, right? The, the common language, because when you think about businesses that have reached a certain stage, let's, you know, just say for argument's sake, kind of series C and beyond, you really, the elegance of the accounting framework is, you know, you have a good defined understanding, at least a call it 80 to 90% understanding of the same type of language that's being used to understand these businesses, right? So of course there'll be nuances you know, there might be different dynamics at play, but you at least have a baseline set of facts by which you can debate, <clears throat> you know, the efficacy of the business, the efficacy of the business model, et cetera. That's right. The eight ball framework, very similar kind of concept but more for, um, you know, earlier stage looking, right? Where, where there aren't some of those clean, as clean of threads from an accounting perspective. You mentioned a family of concepts, right? That, that comprise the eight ball framework. Jonathan, give us a sense of what those concepts are and, and maybe walk through some of them. So we have a baseline of, you know, when you have the eight ball framework, you're using it as a framework to really diagnose product market fit. What are the underlying mechanisms or the underlying, you know, family of concepts that you're using to underwrite that product market fit? 
Yeah, sure. There, the APOL framework kind of consists of three main pillars. Um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, financial statements have like income statement, balance sheet, a statement of cash flows. Um, when you look at, uh, when we do the eight ball, we think of it in terms of, you know, one family, which is like growth accounting, which is really about understanding the components of growth. There's a second component, which is all around cohort analysis, which I really think of as understanding the lifetime of a customer, right? How does a customer change through, through his or her lifetime? Um, and then the third area is around concentration and distribution, right? Like, um, you know, you may, you may have a thousand users or a thousand customers, but how many of them are really, you know, sort of. Are, are very strong in terms of product market fit. How many of them are sort of marginal in terms of product market fit? So those are sort of the three analytical packages in some sense that, that we use. Now, when you say, you know, does a company have product market fit or not? Well, that's kind of like saying, is a company profitable or is a company healthy? Well, you use these three accounting statements to like, to help paint a picture. And depending on the type of business, there are certain patterns that might come out of the three accounting statements. In the same way for us in our three pillars of product market fit, our three analytical pillars, there are sort of different patterns that may appear. You know, there are certain things that, that you look for maybe in SaaS businesses. There are other things that maybe make sense in a payments business. Maybe, a, you know, insurance businesses actually, dem, you know, present themselves in a fairly different way. But those are kind of the three, the three high level, the high level uh, um, you know, sort of frameworks that the whole thing sits on. And, and how did you go, how did you develop the eight ball, right? What gave you the confidence that these are the three elements or the pillars you know, that when you're abstracting away and formulating into a framework, um, you know, these are the right three pillars and, and this could really be applied universally across different types of businesses and business models. Yeah, it, it really stems from our backgrounds as operators and using them in the context of building businesses, right? You know, actually the same thing happened with accounting. You know, uh, accounting, um, you know, was used, you know, sort of in the 1600s all the way up until the, the early 1900s, primarily for businesses to you know, understand how their business is doing as they run their business. They weren't really used by investors. Investors basically speculated and behaved, you know, on rumor. Nobody really looked at the at the income statements, the accounting, um, uh, until really until really Benjamin Graham. You know, Benjamin Graham, you know, is, is largely famous because he developed this concept of values investing, fundamentals investing. But really, what he did at some level is say, "Oh, I have a view on how value is created, and I believe I can observe it." through the financial statements. So therefore I will look at financial statements. <laughs> that was novel, you know, sort of in the, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And he was, you know, the first to really do that. And, and in some sense, sort of the, the, you know, the way we view the world is not that dissimilar, except that we believe that value is created in product market fit and that it shows itself in income statements way later. You know, we're interested in using product market fit um, and this particular you know, analytical framework for it to, to help reveal that value to us, to help guide our decision making. And that perspective on, on diagnosing product market fit, right? One of the elegant things about the, the eight ball, and I've, I've seen it across a couple different business models and definitely, you know, different business types is one of the things that I see in the analysis is the eight ball is really measuring, you know, and if you think about kind of the growth accounting part or, or pillar or so, it's really measuring any type of underlying interaction point with a customer, right? It's not just measuring you know, is revenue up into the right, so on and so forth. I want you to talk a little bit more about, you know, why the ability to model or provide context to any key underlining interaction is important and relevant versus just looking at, you know, top line metrics like things like revenue growth, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's largely a reflection, you know, of where we are in terms of the technology cycle, right? Like where, where we are now is that we've, we've, you know, we've managed to build all these products that add all this value without there being any money changing. 
hands, right? Like, you know, <laughs> you spend all this time looking at Facebook, you've never exchanged money with Facebook. Of course, there's advertising, but there's all this value exchange going on that doesn't have dollar signs, right? And it's all, it's all embedded in the time that you spend when you upload photos, when you're commenting, like whatever you're doing, right? You're spending your time engaging with some product and that itself is value exchange. And so then the question is, can you, can you systematically understand that value exchange? You know, not unlike you would try to systematically, you know, understand dollars moving around, right? That's all accounting is at the end of the day, just trying to systematically understand where all the dollars are moving. Well, you know, over here, you know, the value is created in these, in the, especially in these early stage tech companies, the value is usually somewhere else. It's not quite in the dollars yet, or it's maybe just starting to show in the dollars, but it's really showing somewhere else. Yep. You, you've talked previously, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, the relationship between core accounting concepts and kind of the inspiration behind the eight ball. You, you've talked previously about how you think about um, health for a startup, right? And how you would describe, um, you, you'd describe health more broadly for, for a startup that's raised venture capital. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about that concept, right? When you think about health and, and health measurement for a startup that's raised venture, what does that mean to you? You know, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think it's it helps a bit of an interesting uh, an interesting term. I think that from our point of view, we we think of it more like okay, here is what the how the company presents itself now. Here is the sort of pattern of how customers are interacting with the product. Um, now, if we were to put money on this, if we were to invest in it, what will happen? You know, we, how will some of these numbers change? Some of the numbers will change. Some of them will not. You know, and I think it's really at trying to figure out you know, um, where are places where we can put our money in there, you know, as investors, and then make something really amazing happen, right? Um, and, and that's really what we're looking for in some sense. You know, there are plenty of businesses out there that are healthy that don't have venture capital. You know, the restaurant at the corner here that's been there for, you know, that's been there for 20 years is clearly a healthy business, but it doesn't mean that one should invest venture capital in it, right? And, and if you try to view that restaurant through the lens of the eight ball, it would actually look healthy in the sense that like, uh, you know, it would have long lifetime values on the customers. The customers presumably have fair retention rates. It has probably some reasonable concentration. Maybe it's not growing by a lot, but that's, but that's okay. It's not shrinking, <laughs> right? Or maybe it's growing enough, you know? Um, and that can be a perfectly healthy business just as a, you know, early stage, super high growth, you know, social or consumer product could be. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I think it's, it's, I would say that it's maybe partially about health, but it, but health is also a reflection of like, well, what do you, what does the founder want to do? What is the founder trying to achieve? You know, is that the restaurant in the corner trying to 10x? Probably not. You know, what they're trying to achieve something, and is that thing achievable given sort of where they're at and, and given what they're asking of me as an investor? Um, and it's in the same way for an early stage company, you know, what are they trying to achieve and how does how does the capital play into that? Does it play into it? Maybe not. Right? There are a lot of early stage companies that probably shouldn't raise venture capital and they can be perfectly reasonable, healthy businesses. Doesn't mean that they'll generate 10, 10 to 100x returns back to the investors. The re I really like the way you framed that, Jonathan. And, and the reason I asked that question around uh, health and how you think about health is one of the things you've said in the past that really resonates with me is this concept of an atomic unit of value in a business, right? And one of the ways I think about health and diagnosing health and you know taking the application of that, which you're saying is basically, you know, if we were to put money in, where do we put money in this business for it to really grow? I think is a fundamental concept of understanding what is that atomic unit of value in the business, right? Because if you're going to put investable capital to work, ostensibly you want to have a good core understanding of that atomic unit of value because that's going to drive maximum overall aggregate value creation. I want you to talk a little bit about that concept of the atomic unit of value uh, for, for the sake of our listeners to get an understanding of what that really means. And then a second part of that question is, talk a little bit through how data can really extrapolate 
you know, what a relevant atomic unit of value for a business actually is. Yeah, um, cool. I'll use, a, I'll use a story here that actually goes way back. So if you think about um, the early days of retail, right? If you look at how drug stores were, were arranged in, in like the late 1800s and, and early 1900s, you know, there was sort of this situation where the customer would go in and there would be a counter. And then there'd be a person behind the counter and you'd say, I would like to buy XYZ. And the person behind the counter would go and grab them, put them in a bag and charge them. And that was sort of the experience. And then the modern department store was sort of invented, you know, sort of in the, in the early part of the 20th century and sort of got really big in, in the sort of uh, post-war era um, where it really changed the experience, right? You go into the department store and you have this experience. You walk around, you look at stuff, you touch things. And if you want to buy it, you pick it up and you walk it over to a counter right, and you pay for it. Um, if you look at an income statement for these two companies, they don't look that different. They both generate revenue. They have some cogs, right? Um, you know, but, but in some sense, the atomic unit of value there is something like time spent, right? Presumably, the, the, um, the, the you know, sort of modern department store, uh, you know, of the, of the mid-century was one where the shopper would go in and sort of have this delightful experience and spend a lot of time there, right? And if you could somehow measure that time, clearly they couldn't measure that time back you know, in the mid part of the century, but if you could, you would presumably see a dramatic difference, right, between between the department store and the old style convenience store, right, uh, or the old style drugstore. And so, you know, that that's kind of the idea, right? There, there is a shift in focus, you know, in creating the department store of like, hey, I'm going to create something that tries to unlock this other approach to value. It's about, you know, consumer experience. It's about dwelled time in the store, right? Um, I can't measure it, but I have intuition that this is the way to go. And that's sort of the argument that you would have made in the middle part of the of the 20th century. And now, you know, if you sort of fast forward today, it's not that different, except now we can measure everything. <laughs> you know, that's really the difference. And since you can measure everything, well, we can take this concept of spending time hanging out in the department store and actually put numbers to it and treat it in a, you know, treat it analytically and quantitatively in a way that can that can help bring life to the concept of whether or not you're actually achieving something there, you know, something that's materially different, and whether or not you can use that as a basis for for some business level decision, um, you know, down the road. One of the, one of the things I think is really interesting, especially in that kind of framing of atomic unit values, where my mind starts to go is back to earlier in our conversation when we were talking about kind of the analogy of how to think about the eight ball is really, you know, a, a next gen call it accounting type framework. Um, and one of the things I think is really interesting when you actually do make that comparison is, you know, accounting really often gives us a good perspective on analyzing the cost structure of businesses. So if you look at a prototypical income, uh, income uh, statement, et cetera, you have one line for revenue and you'll have like a million lines for cost, right? Um, and oftentimes it's very backwards looking as well, right? But one of the things that I found interesting about the eight ball in, in actually looking at the eight ball and the output of the eight ball is seeing how much work and underlying analysis is really actually done on the revenue and on the growth side of the equation, right? Which is not only, you know, unbundling and, and really digging deep into core revenue itself and core revenue growth itself, but also doing a lot of work to pull uh, different data points together and make sense of what are some of these different leading types of indicators is that how you think when you think of kind of the core analogies of you know accounting framework and eight ball framework obviously there's lots of nuances and such you know between the two and the utility of the two is different but one of the things that struck out to me on the eight ball side is just how much more emphasis there is on really these leading indicators versus backward looking um historical analysis does that does that statement resonate with you is that how you think about it 
I think so. I mean, it's partially a reflection of the operating background of these frameworks, right? Remember that the operating background of income statements was, you know, people running their businesses in the, for the last 200 years. And the reality is if you just run a normal business, you don't, you know, the top line is like, you largely feel like that just happens. You know, yeah. if I run the restaurant down the, down the street, the top line happens. Restaurant, you know, uh, customers come and go. But what do I have control over? How many people I hire? I have control over how much I pay that supplier over there. And it's all this structure in the cost side because me as a, you know, the owner of my business, the operator of my business, that's where all my time goes, right? It's sort of in that, in that part of the business. Now, when we look at early stage, you know, sort of, you know, when we look at deploying venture capital or actually even before venture capital, when you look at working inside of a company, you know, like uh, one of these high growth companies of the social web era, you know, the cost side was really basic. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, server fees and pay some salaries. There's not a whole lot to optimize there. All of the optimization was above that. You know, can I get demand? Can I get traffic? And can I turn that traffic into revenue? And so all of these companies in parallel were figuring out how do I create some standard way to analyze that stuff above the line, even, even above revenue, you know, the top of the income statement is revenue, but above revenue is presumed some other thing, traffic, engagement, whatever. Does there exist some way for me to analyze that given that we have all this data? And all these companies in parallel were figuring that out. You know, the people at Twitter were figuring it out. People at Facebook were figuring it out. We were figuring out the slide. You know, Google had their own version. Everybody had their own version. And in some sense, you know, you know, I think that what we tried to do is say, okay, if we're going to act as investors, you know, we have to be familiar with all of those approaches, but we're going to use it a little different. Now we're going to use it as an investor. How do we use that? to sort of guide and, and, and aid in our investment decisions and our investment discussions. And it's really just a systematic way of thinking about what's going on revenue and above in some sense. Um, you know, I think that's not, in some sense, that's not novel because of course, you know, anybody who, you know, even invests in public tech companies is really largely not investing in terms of revenue. They're investing in the stuff above that, but they don't really have a systematic way to understand it uh, or analyze it. And that's really the place where, where, you know, I think that we've really made a lot of strides. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I really like that actually upside down flip of uh, of the sophistication and the analysis is really focused on above the line versus below the line. What's the underlying data source that informs you know the eight ball and, and this analysis? I I assume it's you know obviously data from companies, but you know it's not your prototypical. Let's let's you know let's put it this way: when you're pitching tribe right or raising money, it's not the prototypical. Here's our here's just our fifteen page deck, and let's talk very qualitatively about the business. So where is this, you know, where are you guys pulling the data source from? How, how does that all work that, uh, to inform the analysis? Yeah, the primary data comes from the company itself. It's very much like accounting, you know, like where is the data there? Well, it's in the company, nobody else has it, right? Um, and that's the primary thing. And I think the Delta really just becomes after you've seen, you know, a thousand of them, which is at this point, we've probably seen over a thousand of these things. You know, we, we have now developed a very, a very uh, sort of calibrated eye in terms of what are the various types of patterns that can appear. Um, now, you know, when you look at the world through this particular lens, it's kind of like, you know, I like to, I like to point out, you know, the concept of gross profit, you know, some human invented that, that wasn't like this, that wasn't revealed from heaven. You know, it's like some human came up with this idea. And let's say you were the guy to come up with it. You still have to see a bunch of companies before you could be like, okay, gross profit and a restaurant should look like this. Gross profit and an insurance company should look like that. You have to get calibrated. And a lot of what we've done is by, by having a systematic approach every time um, to measure it the same way every time, it allows us to get calibrated. And that's the calibration that we've slowly been doing, you know, both data, but it's also not, it's not just from doing the data analysis. It's also from, from just seeing enough of them and looking at them exactly the same way and measuring them the same way. Yeah. The, the reason I asked that question is because there's a lot of dialogue in venture today about you know, data science, especially if you look over the last five years, you know, um, it's become a lot more popularized as as a as a role, as a philosophy, you know, as a strategy, et cetera. 
But, you know, when, when I look outside in at a lot of firms and, and I hear a lot of folks, you know, talking about using data science, it often culminates in what I call second order or, or proxy facts, right? So, you know, let's go mine a bunch of data on, you know, who's funding these companies. How's that, you know, driving a relationship between outcomes? It's, it's, it's a lot of second order effects, right? Um, I, and, and that's fundamentally different, obviously, from what we're talking about. I'm just, I'm curious to get your perspective on how you think about that perspective on data science and the utility of data science for pulling together that type of information and producing that type of analysis. There, there are firms that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars purely just doing that, right, versus using data science in, in this kind of application the way you guys do at Tribe. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I talk to a lot of firms about this, this stuff. I, I like to say that, you know, data science, data is not a substitute for an investment thesis, right? It's a way to implement a thesis. You know, we have a very clear thesis. Our thesis is that product market fit really matters. And we want to help you do that and, and, and expand it, amplify any product market fit that you have. And so all of our data science is geared completely towards understanding that. Now, that's only one of many possible investment theses. You could have another thesis. For instance, you could have a thesis that goes like this. Your thesis could be, I believe that all that matters is talent. That's it. You know, uh, I don't need data to do that. I can just like, you know, meet a lot of founders, look them in the eye and be like, oh, you're the one, you know, and, and pick them. Or you could maybe build a big machine, the machine could go read LinkedIn or some such. Um, you could use data. You, you don't have to, right? But, but it's just a reflection of the underlying thesis, right? Um, there are some firms that do that. You could have another thesis. Maybe your thesis is, I believe that the way to make money in venture is to just invest alongside other investors who are really good at it. <laughs> in which case, you don't have to have technology. You can just read TechCrunch every morning and be like, oh, I see that so-and-so invested in this company. I'm just going to fire a term sheet. That's, a, that's fine. You could try to run that thesis or that run that strategy. Or you could build a machine. The machine could do what you would do by reading TechCrunch. And that's fine too. But there are many different theses, you know, many different strategies, many different investment theses that may or may not, that could possibly work in venture, we, you know, I, I think we have a view in terms of what, what, what works for us. You know, we have a view as to how value is created. We believe that value comes from this product market fit thing. Um, and, it, and, you know, we're very careful about that. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of why the data works for us that way. I think that a lot of firms out there don't have as clear of an articulation with regards to where they believe value comes from. And so then they end up using data in some way that, you know, maybe is or is not related to their actual view on how value is created. Was there, ever was there ever a time, I mean, we talked about this a little bit of, you know, the framework is certainly not the, you know, the eight ball is not the end all be all necessarily of making an investment decision, right? It's similar to the way we think about accounting, which is it gives you a framework to understand the business and, and you know, then have the right conversations or ask the right questions. I'm curious if there was ever a time that the framework, you know, fired on all cylinders, you know, from the perspective of the metrics just looked fantastic. And you guys actually you didn't invest in the company and and if so what that rationale and such would be has that, yeah, has that ever it happened, happened? Time. It happens all the time okay <laughs> it happens you know not all the time but i'd say it's definitely happened multiple times usually it's a price problem right because it, you know the this stuff doesn't you know there's there's a view of investing there's a view of investing that it's um, that investing is all about buying things at the right price Right. Um, you know, and in venture, oftentimes we don't use that because in venture for a lot of reasons, historical reasons, sort of, you know, cultural reasons, they're just a few prices that are sort of set. And, you know, and, um, and if you show roughly this traction and you're trying to raise roughly this amount, this is sort of the valuation that comes out and valuation, whatever, whatever happens. But sometimes deals come in where the valuation is really out of whack relative to that. And it's because it's demonstrating something that's special that other investors have recognized. And so then, you know, we also, you know, we will in, the, in, in those cases oftentimes see a similar thing, although we'll just 
you know, have a quantitative approach to it. And then we have to still make that judgment call in terms of like, you know, is this, is this something reasonable? And sometimes the price is, is, you know, we can't get comfortable with the price at which the, the deal is happening. Um, and that's, that's definitely led to wrong, you know, wrong decisions a few times, but, but at the same time, you know, um, I would say that really, you know, the data lens in, in situations like that is really about helping us to articulate about how far could this thing go? You know, it's really about under, helping us understand, okay, if this pattern exists, this pattern of product market fit, this pattern of growth, how far can it really go, right? Um, and, and this really comes from the history of the social web. You know, um, you know when I joined Facebook, um, they were around 200 million users. I think they had just raised that $15 billion round. And people were like, this is insane. It's such a high valuation. Right, this is a huge user base. That was that's a big user base even by today's standards. Um, and people thought, okay, you know, this, this has got to like plateau, right? It was already at that point, I think, half the valuation of Yahoo or something. I don't remember. A meaningful fraction. Um, and okay, you know, where are we now? You know, sort of ten years later, eleven years later. Well, it's you know more than ten x in terms of the user base. The valuation, of course, has gone up by some about six fifty x, something like that. And and so, but the thing is that the underlying pattern of how customers were using it, how it was growing, that pattern never changed. And if you really understood that pattern early on, one understood it, and then two had the fortitude to prognosticate that it would continue for as long as it has. Then you would have been very right, you know, regardless of the price that you were entering, even if you were entering, you know, uh, at some valuation above ten billion dollars. Jonathan, I want to round out the conversation with getting your perspective on what the next evolution of data science in investing is. Right, obviously, you know, Tribe will see more companies. The eight ball will continue to be back tested, refined, etc. Um, but I want to get your perspective on, you know, whether there are fundamental breakthroughs and and opportunities you see you know, to create frameworks for, for other stages of evaluation. You know, you guys have a framework for product market fit, makes a ton of sense. Are there other core areas you think that data science can, can really provide value in, uh, in venture? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe, maybe separate from even the data thing, you know, that there's sort of this broad phenomena that has occurred over the last 10 years, which is that the number of, you know, venture firms, venture investors, you know, including sort of the seed investing, side has has grown massively right and that's that's i believe that's a good thing for society no you know it's good because it means that we try more things and the point of venture in some sense is to help these companies come into existence so these companies can have an impact on the world and if we have a lot of these little seed investing seed firms running around you know writing checks via all manner of strategies some of those strategies involve data some don't that's good right it tries they try all sorts of stuff um and i think that that's that's broadly what's going on right is that in venture you know with the, the proliferation of firms it also means a proliferation of strategies and viewpoints and then those some of those strategies will involve data some will not and and in some sense for every combination of strategy and implementation of that strategy some firm will probably exist to attempt to exploit it somehow, right? Um, so, so if you you know that in some sense that's my answer. I think people will try everything. Now, what do I think will work? You know, I, obviously, I think ours is the is the right approach because you know our core belief is that you know by working on growth and product market fit, that's how you actually create that impact. Now, that's where we focus. That's obviously that doesn't help a lot in the angel stage, right? Like it doesn't help when there's no product to measure product market fit. And I think that there's a lot of folks who are spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to systematically invest pre-product. And maybe you can use data to do that. Maybe you can't, you know, you know, that's sort of something that we've thought about a little bit, but it's not really where we choose to spend our time. You know, we believe that our expertise, we believe that the place where we can really add value to the ecosystem is here in this stage of early product market fit. Jonathan, this is a, 
So it was a ton of fun. It was, uh, and it was a really nice accent and augment to the, the conversation we had with Arjun, um, you know, to, to really understand the core philosophy on, you know, why you guys founded Tribe, you know, how you think about investing at Tribe. Um, and so excited to, to continue to do deals alongside with you guys and, and really keep looking at these eight ball frameworks. I think the way the elegance and the, and the clarity of the framework really provides a, an interesting and nuanced perspective on, on how to evaluate businesses. So thanks, thanks for making the time. Really enjoyed having you on today. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been super fun.